was, that was a lot. Uh, I want to start out by saying hello to my mom, who I think is probably watching somewhere in Iowa. I love you. So glad. I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day, and I get to do stuff like that because I do what I do. Um, but you should call your mom today, or uh, at least remember later. I always, it's always the Sunday and the Monday, like, um, holidays, which it, it's like, you know, I've got this big thing that happens on Sunday mornings, and so I have to create ways to remind myself so I don't forget later. Um, terrible excuse, and not how I was intending to start this message today on Mother's Day. So glad that you are here with us. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. We started a new sermon series called Encountering Jesus, and the idea is to follow interactions uh, that people uh, had or that resulted when they met the resurrected Christ. And so we began with the meeting between Jesus and Thomas, and Thomas has one of the most unfortunate historical nicknames. We all know him as Doubting Thomas. And we learned that having doubts isn't toxic to faith. In fact, it's kind of healthy for belief, especially when we engage those doubts. We can do the opposite and let those doubts create this wall or this, you know, like, hey, we're just going to hold Jesus at arm length because I got doubts. But when we engage those things, those questions that we have, they have the ability to strengthen our faith in Christ. Then we moved on to Peter and uh, the disciples encountering Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Christ calls us out of our way, uh, both in our life and in the world, to sometimes what seems like dead ends. And so what do we do when we encounter setbacks or worse, when we make, in, um, make mistakes, when we endanger relationships that are in our life? Do we be like Jesus? Do we be like Jesus? Will we be like Judas? Big difference. Will we be like Peter? Or will we accept the invitation of Christ to be restored and renewed? Then we moved on and we focused on the centrality and the reality of the resurrection. This weird and particular belief of Christians that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead and that God promises to do the same for those who trust in him. And then last week we joined two disciples walking on the road to this little village called Emmaus. Jesus joined them on their way. They didn't recognize him at first. We see how disillusionment, disappointment can make us numb to the presence of Christ. But even so, these two travelers knew there was something up. They wanted this visitor to stay. They welcomed him to dinner. And it was their eyes that were opened when they broke bread together. You know, that's just one reason why Christians have this habit of gathering each and every week. It's the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people to worship to break bread together, it can make all the difference in sustaining our faith. And today, we're going to move on. We're going to venture outward. We're going to encounter Jesus at the Ascension. The Ascension is this historical um, holiday, really, that the global church celebrates. It's 40 days after Easter. This year, it's going to be celebrated Thursday, May 18th. And the New Testament records Jesus appearing to the 11 remaining disciples and as many as 500 other followers of Christ during this 40-day period between Easter and Ascension. 
And so that's what we remember and we celebrate May 18th. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week in Luke chapter 24. It's a continuation of the story last week that happened after the road to Emmaus when these two disciples immediately traveled back to Jerusalem. And this would have been on the evening of Easter. Okay, so that timing is important when we think about this. They encountered Christ, they broke bread together, and as soon as they realized that it was him, you know, Jesus vanished, and they immediately headed back to Jerusalem to tell others about it. And so we pick up the story in in Luke 24, verse 34. It's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened along the way, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Well, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. So verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus stands among them and says, boo. Right? I mean, they were startled, frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost. You know what the the word for uh, ghost is in Greek? This sounds like I'm starting a joke. It's not. You might even be able to to figure this out. The word for ghost is pneuma. It's the same word where we get words like pneumonia or pneumatic. Uh, I always miss these words on spelling tests as a kid because I'm terrible at spelling. And when you put a silent P on something, I'm just not going to sound that out, right? So this is where, I mean, it goes all the way back to, to the Greek, pneuma. It means breath, ghost, spirit. And so Jesus asked, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Then what does he do? He shows them his wounds. He says, touch me. He even eats. Why? Why are you troubled? I don't know, Jesus. Maybe it's because I thought you were dead. And it's because you were actually dead. That's why I'm troubled. The poor disciples left wondering, is this Jesus? Is he alive? What is going on? Well, if you've been paying attention over the last few weeks here at Cascade, you've noticed a theme. The first theme is Jesus' creepy body, right? I mean, he's showing his hands and his, his wounds. Like, yikes, what's going on there? Uh, you'll notice there's a theme of, pre- uh, of uh, there's a presence of fear and doubt among his disciples. And there's a, a growing question as the days go by from the disciples, like, what, what do we do now? This didn't, isn't turning out like I thought. And so we spent a whole week on kind of each one of those themes. It keeps coming up. Why? Because it's really, really, really important. 
not just for them, but also for us. We're going we're gonna to go through some of these themes again today. You know, if you look at the disciples, it's almost like they have a hang-up with Jesus' body. There's really good reason. At this point in the story, it's still Easter Sunday. It's the evening. The news is still being absorbed by all of the disciples that Jesus, in fact, is alive. I mean, just that morning, Mary, Peter, John all went to the tomb at some point. They were looking for Jesus' body, but it wasn't there. Jesus, however, was there. Not what they were expecting. The Christian faith rests on the person of Jesus and whether or not he is the Messiah. All of this hinges on an empty tomb, which is another way of saying a missing body. There's a missing body at the heart of Christianity. It's the empty tomb. I mean, even the Jewish leaders at the time knew it. According to Matthew, they paid off the guards, the Roman guards, to say his disciples had stolen the body. Well, how did they steal the body? Well, obviously the guards fell asleep. And because that would have landed them in big, 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 big trouble, like capital punishment trouble with the Romans, the Jewish leaders said they'd cover it all up for them. So there's a lot of incentive in this story for the Pharisees, for the Jewish leaders, for the soldiers to produce Jesus' body if they had known where it was. And there's a common theme actually throughout history is that, well, the disciples probably just stole the body. But as we read this account, and you see how defeated this group of people is, it's almost inconceivable that they would go from hiding in a locked room. I mean, if they could get Jesus, they definitely could pick off his disciples, no problem. It's inconceivable that they would have been so emboldened in the days following Jesus' crucifixion to travel around saying, hey, Jesus is back from the dead, he's resurrected, knowing the whole time that they had just stolen the body, that this was all a hoax. It's also more inconceivable when you consider church tradition. You know, most of the disciples, like all but John, died really terrible deaths. It's inconceivable to think that they would go through all of this based on something they knew was a lie. Matt Randalls a few weeks ago taught us uh, about the resurrection. Jesus isn't a ghost, his spirit is embodied. And that's a key, very key Christian principle, embodiment. There's no compartments to us. You know, we we always kind of conveniently separate things into body, you know, mind, spirit. That's actually not how it is. We're an integrated whole. You know, what happens to our body affects our spirit in our mind. What happens in our mind affects our body and our soul. What happens in our soul affects, they're all connected. That's the teaching of Christianity. And the idea that our body is just this cage that our soul will escape someday isn't a Christian idea, even though it's really common still today. And it's what all the Greeks and Romans would have believed in Jesus' day. So it's almost hard to believe that Luke, who writes this gospel, He's a Greek, 
the whole idea of an embodied existence after death would have been a completely foreign concept for him. And yet, here he is writing about it. And even for us, you think about it, it's a stretch. I mean, most of us are hoping to trade this in for a newer model upon death, amen? Kind of makes you think twice about getting a tattoo. But that's a separate story, right? How am I going to explain this to Jesus? I mean, really, it's there forever. Just kidding. That's what I tell my kids. But when we read the Gospels, we obviously see that Jesus' body isn't the same as our body. There's something different. It still has substance. You can still touch him. He even eats. But there's a lot here that we just don't know. So seeing Jesus alive was absolutely critical for the disciples. They needed to have no doubts, so that they could carry on Jesus' mission in the kingdom of God. And I imagine that some of you are thinking, you know, why don't we get the same benefits, right? Why don't we get the benefit of seeing with our eyes Jesus' resurrected body? I mean, it would be so much easier to believe. Would it? You think of all the people in the gospel stories that witnessed miracles, and yet not everyone was convinced. And I would still argue that we have a similar benefit to seeing Jesus alive. We really do. We don't just believe in this idea of the resurrection. We believe that Jesus himself is still alive that you can know him, that you can be in his presence. And that presence of Christ happens through the power of his Holy Spirit. And when our minds are filled with anxiety, with questions, with doubts, when we're feeling overwhelmed, swamped by life and all that we experience, you know, Jesus still extends the greeting to us. He says, peace Peace be with you. Maybe that's something you need to receive this morning. The words of Jesus spoken to you. Peace. Peace be with you. You know, God has a, a way. I mean, he's always wanted to be with us, to bless us, to be for us, or believe that he's on our side. And yet that's precisely what Satan tries to undermine. He tries to plant the seeds of doubt in us. That was the basic temptation of sin and uh, the basic temptation and sin of Adam and Eve was that they doubted God's love. They doubted his intentions, his friendship, and so they disobeyed God. You know, we kind of do the same thing. We doubt that God really truly loves us, and so we should look out for ourselves. That's what we should do. Believing that we're alone and on our own leads to a lot of bad decisions, at least does for me. It also means that we're held hostage by fear. It's kind of the opposite of peace. We're held hostage by fear. 
And primarily, fear is a belief that God's not enough. Fear is the belief that God's not enough. And I can't help but think about that on a day like today, Mother's Day, and how fear and parenting seem to go hand in hand for you that have experienced it. You know, we all fall into this trap that we're parenting on our own. We're constantly trying to talk ourselves off the ledge, especially moms. I mean, there's nonstop worry. Are they okay? Are they safe? Are they warm? Are they understood? Are they well-fed? Are they loved? Did they brush their teeth today? I mean, there's just nonstop anxiety around these things, right? For those of you that are moms. Dads were just blissfully ignorant of so many things, right? I, I can't help but think, like, when they're little, when they're infants, every time you go to, you know, the regu- regular checkups, we're so fortunate to live in a place where we can have regular checkups. It, they give you those percentiles, right? And you're always terrified, like, well, what does that mean? Like, are they growing fast enough? And then when you get to the stage where Corey and I are, are now, and we, we've got a junior in high school and a, you know, middle schooler about to be in high school, you, you want it to slow down. Like, it's all happening too fast. They're growing up too fast. But there's no end to this anxiety. There's going to school. There's making friends. There's making good decisions. There's so many things out of our control. And so when you identify that you're afraid, whatever it may be, that you're feeling anxiety, that you're uncertain, that you're worried, it's when we take a deep breath and we remind ourselves that God is enough. And we hear these words of Jesus spoken so long ago and still relevant to us today. Peace, peace be with you. So after Jesus reassures his disciples, he takes the time to explain what's happening and why. Verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you why I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's like the whole of Scripture right there. Then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and, uh, on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Well, there's a couple of key phrases in here I want to point out. The first is that it says he opened their minds to the Scriptures. And obviously, Luke's purpose here isn't to do a verse-by-verse exposition of the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. We don't have time for that today. He's just using a broad sweep. And what it highlights is that the point of Jesus' word aren't that such and such a verse has now come true, believe it. It's that Jesus is, it, it's like the, the whole, direct, the truth and direction of all the scriptures has been pointing towards this moment. And it's now been realized in Jesus Christ. 
It's a watershed moment full of triumph, full of endless possibilities. And almost before the disciples can even grasp the gravity of what's just happened, Jesus ascends to heaven, leaving the disciples with little more than a handshake and a promise that he's going to be back. Actually, he left them with a mission and a promise to empower and equip them. And what's more is this like promise or this desire to include them. You know, often I think about, God, why, if you really wanted the, the kingdom, if you wanted this done, or at least done right, why did you ask us to do it, right? And he wants to include us. And that doesn't make any sense in my finite mind. But in God's eye and mind, it does. We're made in his image. He wants to include us in his mission. He wants to empower and equip us to do it. Amazing. And I just imagine the disciples standing there as Jesus ascends into heaven wondering, so what was up with all that kingdom talk? You know, throughout New Testament studies, theologians describe living in the tension of the already and the not yet. And so Jesus' ascension, going into heaven, is kind of an inauguration of this already but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. Meaning that the kingdom of God was present in Jesus, but we're still awaiting its total fulfillment. You know, the resurrection was like the first installment of God's new redeemed order. And so even today, when we look out and we look around our world and we go, wow, that is really messed up. That's broken. I mean, some parts of the world, you, uh, you know, war, conflict, sex trafficking, out of control violence, crime, whatever... Families being broken by divorce and all sorts of other things. I mean, it's not hard, it's not hard to look around and go, wow, our, our world has a long way to go. Right now, we're stuck somewhere between the old and the new. Yes, Jesus will return to set the world straight. But even now, we can experience this inbreaking. Uh, it's like heaven breaking into our lives on earth. We can train ourselves to be aware of Christ's presence, to see it happening around us. We're a part of that. You know, God didn't just leave us with an IOU. He provided us a taste of resurrection life to come. And that's what we mean when we say we experience life in God's spirit. But God also provided us a purpose and a mission. You know, the Great Commission, as it's, as it's so named, uh, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that's where we kind of find this Jesus leaving and he telling, telling the disciples to go out into all the world and create disciples, make disciples. It leads them with this, this charge. Here in Luke, he says it differently. Luke says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
And the exciting thing about this in Luke's gospel is that he follows it up with a whole other book called Acts, Acts of the Disciples, or of the Apostles, which begins in Jerusalem. See, that phrase, beginning in Jerusalem, is kind of important. There's a subtle but vital shift in direction. You see, people at Jesus' time would have thought, oh, it's the Messiah. Like, everybody is going to come here to us in Jerusalem. And Jesus flips it around on him. He's like, it's not how it's going to work. We're going to start here, and you are sent out. Think about church on a Sunday morning. Like, is the whole goal to get everybody to come here? Well, yeah, maybe kind of, but not really. We are sent out into the world to change, a shift in direction. And then Jesus says, you're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high. It's almost like he's saying, here's how you're going to do this. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So that phrase, clothed with power from on high. Um, Oddly enough, I looked at all sorts of English translations this last week, like, you know, from the original King James (laughs) until now. And they I think there was one, the New Living Translation, that didn't say it just like this. Clothed with power from on high. It's kind of an amazing phrase. And there's a direct connection here between being witnesses and being clothed with power. You can be a witness of what you've experienced and seen because... And when you are empowered. Jesus, of course, is talking about the Holy Spirit. The word I like most here is clothed. Clothed. Um, I just imagine like putting on a coat. You know, the Masters Golf Tournament was a month ago. What does the winner get? They get a green jacket. They make this big moment of being of putting that jacket on. They're a champion now, a master's champion. That whole idea of being clothed with power. In the New Testament, Paul's writings especially make use of this image. It's a transformation that people have, a God-fueled transformation. Romans 13, 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, for the perishable must must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. Galatians 3, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew, no Gentile, slave, nor free, male, nor female. You're all one in Christ. Colossians 3, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Like, put this on. Bear with each other. Forgive. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, same word, clothe yourself with love. In 2 Corinthians 5, 
For we know that if the earthly tent, he's talking about our body, we lived in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven built not by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. He's still talking about our body, this resurrection body, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For we, while we are still in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead, of, instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that is what mortal may be, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You see how that all comes together? We live in this reality of what happened 2,000 years ago and what's going to happen someday. Jesus is coming back. And here we are stuck right in the middle, and we're not lost, okay? He didn't just send us out into the wilderness. He gave us his spirit. When we put our faith and our trust in Christ and surrender to him, he comes to live inside of us. That's embodiment. His spirit is in us. Wherever I go, wherever you go, God goes with you. We're clothed with power. I get frustrated with myself because sometimes I think I sell God short. I think too small. I don't have enough faith, right? We're clothed with power. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. And so think about what you and I are equipped to do, to be as witnesses, to love others while being loved. We can actually forgive while being forgiven. We can receive grace and mercy while at the same time being graceful and being merciful. We can be a witness of our, experience, our experiences with Christ and his resurrection life. They can just flow from us normally and naturally and casually in our conversations with others. That's what being clothed with power means. And all of this, it's what leads us to joy. I'll close by reading the final verses here of Luke, chapter 24. And when Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he lifted he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we praise you this morning for the gift of new life that we can discover in you. And that you thought us worthy enough to include us in your mission. 
and to even dwell in our bodies. Help us, Lord. As terrifying as that might seem at moments, it's also incredibly joyful and freeing, liberating, Lord. Help us not to sell you short or embarrass you. And even when we do, Lord, let us receive the grace and the forgiveness that you so freely give to us. Help us this week as we go forth wherever we may go, Lord, with a memory that you are with us, that you are inside of us, Lord, that you are empowering us. Whether it's fear and anxiety that we need to overcome and receive your peace, or whether it's uh, some challenge that we're facing, Lord, or maybe it's just being a good listener or being present with our family, you can help us to do that. Help me to do that, Lord. And as we celebrate our moms and the people in our life, Lord, that nurture and care for us, may they receive your grace and your mercy even through us. We pray for all these things. In the blessed name of Jesus, amen. Well, please rise for our closing song together.